Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Ruck, and hopefully down the other end of the line is uh, Stephen Jones and Owen Slot. Good afternoon, good evening, gentlemen. How are you? We're great, thanks, Lowell. We're still missing you. We've um, uh, been here, it feels like years. Yeah, two years we've been. Three and a half days the tournament is so far. Does it feel like three and a half weeks? Yes. Yeah. But we, we've just got our spirits up because we've been to a party in Slotty's room. Is it 917, your room? Nine, 917, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the expenses department are going to be enraged by this. <laughs> we had five burgers, five five beers, and a, and a bottle of red to entertain us during the um, the Wales-Georgia uh, game. We'll have to up those expenses when I get out there. You do realise that, chaps, don't you? So come on then, guys. Outside of the rugby, or, or maybe including the rugby, what, what, what have you been up to so far in three and a half days in Japan? Well... One of the great treats is the bullet train or the Shinkansen, as it's known in the in Japanese. And um, my goodness, it's quick, isn't it, Slotty? I've been jogging a couple of times down the river in Sapporo, and uh, and I outstripped your Shinkansen. No, anyway, it makes the country smaller because it is so rapid. And do you know what, Lawrence? They reckon we read an article today that said in five years' time they will have trains travelling at 350 miles an hour. Wow. It's unbelievable the technology they got you. I'm assuming there's no time delays out in Japan. Do you know what? If you, if, when the train stops, you've got to get on and off immediately because they cannot be one minute late leaving and then one minute late arriving at the next station. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, but Lawrence, let's, we just, just let's nail this. They have technology and the trains are impeccable. But if you want to pay cashless in a shop or whatever, no chance. You're walking around with a massive pocket of change. They've still got single-use water bottles everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Plastic bags. I think us lot in southwest London, we're a more advanced society. And how are you finding the, um, the, the, the lavatories out there, the toilets in Japan? Because they're, they're, they're somewhat unique, aren't they? Oh, jeez. Well, I um, investigated them. So I went into one 27 times on Saturday. <laughs> That's and true. In, in, a, in a desperate rapid weight loss program. And I found them, and I thought they were really good. They were convivial. There were, were buffets in there. And I tell you what, they were clean, smart, uh, and hygienic. And I, I really enjoyed them. Lawrence, in the hotel we're in, which is the same hotel the England team are in, it's the, it's the Sheraton Bay in uh, Kobe, if anyone fancies joining us. They, they do have these fancy Japanese toilets. And um, the instructions that I was reading in front of me as I was sitting tell you not only 
how to water your undercarriage, but also it tells you how to wash your wand, as they put it. <laughs> Jonesy, have you washed your wand? Yeah. Yeah, I did it the other day in 48 coats. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, gents, I mean, obviously, from a, from a rugby perspective, uh, we're going to go into the individual games, particularly of the home nations, uh, in, in a second. But just from, a, from an overall perspective of the, of, the, of the weekend's opening matches, including Wales today, what, what, what's, the, you know, what's your overall impressions, Owen, starting with you? The Sassay was set up as the day, wasn't it? It was, it was the day to grab everyone's attention. And there were three... Really, really compelling games for different reasons. Uh, still, still quite a lot of controversy over the uh, Australia Fiji game. Quite rightly so. For me, my favourite team by a mile so far are Fiji. I just, I just love them, and I feel so sad that they had a possible sensational victory taken away from them. But you had the Fiji game, then you had the France Argentina game that I was at, which had a, an epic finish, and then you had the um, All Blacks uh, going past the Springboks, which Jonesy was at. Yeah, it was, and. Um... It was funny. It, it wasn't the all sort of all-time epic Lawrence that we kind of thought it might be, but it was a fascinating game. And at the end of it, I was I was struck by the fact that a it is unbelievably staggeringly difficult to beat the All Blacks, but there was something in that game which made me think that they are beatable. So it was it's been great. I'm very very disappointed with the refereeing. There was meant to be a crackdown on high shots on on rank offside on offside in front of the kicker, on contact in the air and the line-out. They, they promised faithfully a big crackdown. Yeah. That hasn't happened. And we've just seen Wales and Georgia in which the refereeing fell to pieces. So uh, it, it is it is a, a tournament that's well-launched, nothing champagne at the moment, but, but fascinating. Refs need to get a hold of it. And I think the tournament is as open as we thought it would be a couple of weeks ago. Let's get into that then on the officiating. And, and you know, listen, we all recognise they have very hard jobs to do. But it tends, I mean, those those games on Saturday particularly highlighted, you know, some, some controversial issues. And I think the credibility of World Rugby's campaign to rid the game of, of dangerously high tackles is suffered a bit of a blow, didn't it, across the weekend with that Reese Hodge challenge, which for me, was fairly cut and dried for a red card. And, and if you look into it, the, you know, the, the outcome was that uh, Yato, the wonderful back row forward for Fiji, played no further part in the game, went off concussed. Uh, he was by far their best player on the field up to that point. And of course, the little fact of the matter that Reese Hodge went on to score eight points in the second half. So uh, he's obviously been cited now. But do you think the officials... I've just ignored that guidance, or do you think it was just a a bad day at the office for 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 a couple of officials that day and TMOs as well? I think that refereeing's just phenomenally hard, and some bits will be good and some bits will disagree with. But I I think that the um the Reece-Hodge decision is one kind of one for the ages that we'll regret. If you could distill the history of rugby into a, a number of tackles, then. The one that we'd remember is that Sam Warburton got sent off for in the in the semi final and caused such a furor and people would talk about it so much, but it caught but it got so much publicity that everyone in the world of rugby knew, learnt from that moment onwards that a spear tackle was illegal, that it wasn't acceptable anymore. And if that moment had seen Reese Hodge sent off, which which well, I think we all agree uh, he should have been, then that would have been the message that world rugby needed to send. But unfortunately, the opposite is the case. He, he'll probably be, well, he has been cited. He'll probably be suspended now for a few weeks, but it just needed to happen at the time. And, and you've already alluded to, to it. Fiji were denied, and, and that was that's just rank unfair. The TMO, Lawrence, he's, 
He hasn't got to be the judge and jury. All he's got to say is there is a case to answer. Now, how can the TMO carry on and say that it was there was no problem there. That's absolutely ridiculous. World Rugby is shying away from this fact that, from this idea that the opening games have to set the standard, mm. but they're wrong because that's what they have to do. And yeah. and you're dead right because on day two, uh, with Wayne, uh, day three rather, with Wayne Barnes and Paul Williams, they were communicating well, they were stress free, and and they were excellent, and they marshaled the game, and that is what we want. Big tick for the tournament itself. Big question mark about refereeing and the crackdown. Well, listen, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's rugby union is unusual as a sport because the influence of, of the referee's interpretation of the laws can have such a profound impact on the match. And that's probably why we get a lot of complaints about inconsistency. They're fairly common. But uh, I have to say there was a moment in the uh, in the Paul Williams uh, refereed game between uh, England and, and Tonga yesterday where uh, I think it was um, Callum Afoni made a tackle on Anthony Watson and you know, I talked about it on, on TV afterwards as saying that was, you know, one of the decisions of the tournament because it would have been easy following Rhys Hodges' wrong decision to have overreacted. And in actual fact, what the referee did is he, he looked at it very clearly and it's the accuracy of, of the decision-making and then the communication with his TMO. And he decided that uh, there was enough mitigation. The intent was, was the right one and, uh, and the outcome was the right one. And, and I think everyone understood that and, and moved on. But it's, it's, it's going to be a, a debate that rumbles on as we, as we progress through this tournament, isn't it? I, I thought it was interesting. I was watching the Wales game with Jonesy just now. And um, uh, Rowan Kitt was the, uh, the TMO. He was the same TMO from the controversial Australia-Fiji game. He was on everything. He was calling probably more than he should have done. It was like he was a bit on edge, if you like, but... But but correctly so. If you if you're calling more more than you need to, then that's that's probably not right. But it's but it's better than less. I don't think we'll see another mistake as as heinous as that because I think this th- there's been so much noise already. I just guessing that I think the World Cup has has got over that hump. There there was an interesting. Uh, I mean, we don't want to talk about officiating too much because we want to get into the meat and drink of what actually happened. But there was a there was a tackle that was celebrated. I'm sure in living rooms around uh, around the world by Zane Capelli on Billy Vunapoli yesterday. And, uh, you know, the outcome was that he put Billy on his, uh, on, his, on his backside. But actually, it was still an illegal tackle. The fact of the matter is the outcome was OK, so that the referee and the TMO took no further action. The Tongan player probably won't thank me for this, but a quote after the game, he said, I just put my head down and hoped for the best. I was not thinking too much about the details in using my arm. I don't think there was as much arms in that tackle to be honest I just wanted to go all in and that, that, that I mean that's fairly fairly yeah. sort of damning what we're suggesting here is that players will continue until behaviours change to uh, to throw themselves into challenges without using their arms and if the outcome is okay then no further action will be taken that doesn't mean it's not an illegal tackle if he'd have actually hit Billy a lot higher he would have been sent off from the field so I think there just has to be an understanding that behaviours need to change and it's not going to happen in the course of the next eight weeks you're right, Lawrence, and you, you you called it correctly there because there was a time when the big the key point in tackles was did he wrap his arms around? The key point now is height of tackle. So you, you know he, that guy got away, as you say, without wrapping his arms around, but he didn't actually hit him head high. So you know rugby is full of trends. It's full of you know the late the latest thing that they they bring into the fore. And you're absolutely right. But if he'd gone high, he would have been sent off. But uh, he didn't, and actually, then all the all the people who went to the game remember 
that tackle was probably the highlight of the game because everybody wins. And Lawrence, did you see the way Billy got up smiling afterwards? I, I thought that was a lovely moment. Yeah, of course. It's not often that uh, he, he ends up on his backside uh, from, a, from a tackle. So uh, probably took him by surprise a little bit. But as you say, it was a, a nice moment. And just, just to finish on the officiating, because what we saw yesterday from Wayne Barnes was at a different level. And, and as an England fan myself, if England don't make the final, then there's a high probability that Wayne Barnes, who is comfortably the best referee in the world at the moment will be officiating the final the disciplinary panel have got a big job to do now haven't they because that you know Reese Hodge is going to go before them and you know we don't want to go too far the other way you know we don't want to completely end the players tournament just with one tackle the rugby world cup is only an eight-week tournament can I just tell you that the mid-entry point for a dangerous tackle is six-week ban so what we're effectively saying is if you make one bad tackle in this world cup you could just be ruled out of the tournament for the rest of the uh, rest of the campaign. Yeah, is, is Reese Hodge now out of the tournament? That that would seem harsh. I was trying to get into his head when he made that tackle, and you can't second guess what he was thinking. But Reese Hodge had been under so much pressure in that game against Fiji because mm. the Fijian wingers have been running at him, and they just they'd just been chucking him everywhere. He he'd been unable to stop them. So when he went in for that final tackle, it was almost a desperation thing. How can I possibly stop him? So they'd almost driven him to that moment. That doesn't make it right. and I, I don't really know why I'm telling you that at all, but I just think that that's what happened there. There has to be a proper ban. Well, however sympathetic we are to the players, it has to be a statement. As, as Jonesy said, it's the start of the tournament. Let's get this right. Let's tell people how serious we are about it. Yeah, I, I, listen, I agree. My, my, my point was that the tariffs that are currently in place are not fit for purpose for a Rugby World Cup. They're fit for purpose for a player who's playing across maybe six to nine months of the season. If you ban a player for six or seven weeks, you know, that would seem acceptable. When the tournament is only going to last seven or eight weeks, you know, you've, you've got to almost have a tariff that reflects that, that the tournament is only seven or eight weeks. I totally agree with you. I think that, you know, a, a two-match ban in the World Cup but basically is worth a five or six match ban outside. I, I agree. I don't think he deserves to, to lose the rest of the World Cup. I do think he, he deserves to lose at least one game, maybe two, probably one. And then he's lost a World Cup game, a huge game against Wales. And, and then we can, we can crack on. But how much simpler would it have been? The TMO had said, recommend yellow card. Resodge would have gone off, come back on, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. If only the due process had worked at the start. If we focus now on the rugby, Jonesy, uh, I read your piece uh, in the in the newspaper over the weekend, the Sunday Times, and you were highly critical of England after the game. Do you think, you know, 24 hours later, that was deserved? Yes, I do. But I've got a bit of a history, and I, and I explain it this way, Lawrence. For years, after 2003, I would sit there for hundreds of press conferences, hundreds of matches, and, 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 and Brian Ashton, Andy Robinson, Martin Johnson, Stuart Lancaster would all would say, Look, we weren't very good today, but we're on our way. We're coming. We're learning. We could have won. We should have scored. And I used to listen to all this and drink it all in. Then I realized that each of the, each of the World Cups in, since 2003, 2007, 11, and 15, they never did, and they were hopeless. And I have to say this time, I'm not going to be caught out like that again. England did not give a World Cup semi-final performance yesterday. And it is no point in pretending otherwise because the World Cup is important. There's only a few games left in it. And when are they going to come out and play like with their full side and play at full throttle? I am not going to be caught again at the end of the tournament in hindsight saying, no, that wasn't very good. I'm going to do it before it happens. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, Owen, I guess the positives are that they did 
eventually get the bonus point win. They came out of the game with, with no... I mean, Johnny may maybe have picked up a slight injury, but no major injury worries. I read this morning that they had a, a, a late visit from uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, and it was rather ironic they needed a bit of Fergie time to get that final bonus point try. I mean, uh, was it were there just a bit of rustiness there, or do you think there's concerns for England fans moving forward? Yeah, there was rustiness. Uh, it concerns... I don't think so. I, I, you'd have a better idea than me, but, but when you're going into a game that you know you're going to win, then how hard is it to get you get yourself up for it? I just want to talk about that Fergie time, just briefly there, Lawrence, because it was just a, a hilarious bit of, of Eddie Jones because we had that game. No one's disputing that England were disappointing. No, no one would, say, would suggest anything else. But Eddie Jones, typical to him, he comes in, he says, it was fine, it was perfect, we got our four tries, we got our five points. And then he says, do you know what? We had Alex Ferguson in, the, in camp before we came out here. And it was Alex Ferguson that made us work out what we needed to do when we were under pressure. And immediately, bloody Eddie Jones had changed the narrative of the day. And you look at, you look at the back pages of the papers on Monday morning, and we all wrote about Fergie, Alex Ferguson being in England camp, and the disappointing England performance was lower down on the page. Eddie played a blinder. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, he also played a blinder by comparing Tonga to playing Stoke at football, really, where there seems to be lots of stop-start, lots of uh, frustrating moments for this England side. I guess the, one of the real positives was the performance of, uh, of Manu Tuolangi, who we know is you know, is, is a physical, very strong player, but actually played with a lot of intelligence for England in, uh, in that match against Tonga. And I thought there were other notable standout performers. Itoji looks like the player he really is, which is world-class. And uh, there was one or two other performances that England can be pleased with. Lawrence, were you disappointed by what you saw? Or, or as a player, could you relate to the circumstances, first game of a tournament, all that stuff that people say that, that us as media are, a sort of train to be a bit cynical about, but at what point we sh- should we soak it up? Well, I think I guess I was a tiny bit underwhelmed. I wouldn't say disappointed. I was just underwhelmed. I, I sort of puffed my cheeks out and thought, oh, is that the opening statement? You know, coming into this game, I just saw England looked a little bit subdued. You've had a long time in camp. Yes, they've had a lot of warm-up games, etc., etc. Uh, Jamie George, I read an article, that, that uh, an interview that he'd done, and he said, um, you know, we're like kids that can't wait to get out in the playground. And, you know, the, the very first kickoff kind of set the tone for the game. Billy Vunapola collected the kick and, uh, you know, gave it straight to Owen Farrell to boot off the field. Now, you know, maybe Billy's trying to be nice to his Tongan friends, but surely if you're of Tongan ancestry, you're the number eight for England, you're England's, you know, talismanic player, you catch that kickoff, first thing you do is, is take it straight to the heart of the opponent and set your intentions out very early. And I know these are only small points, but the, the first few moments of a game set the tone for the rest of the game. And I thought England missed the trick by not really taking the game to Tonga and doing what Wales did maybe in the first 20 minutes of the game against Georgia and say, do you know what? The one thing we're not going to do is be out, out roughed up and out beaten up by, by you guys. And so I was just underwhelmed, I think, was the overall feeling. If you want to win this World Cup, Lawrence, you have to compare yourself to the very best. Would New Zealand have said, had they lost or had they not played very well, Oh, we were rusty. We'd be we'd be we'd be better in the in the in the next few weeks. South Africa never said once. Oh, it was our first game. We're getting into it. We were rusty. They never said that. They lost to the All Blacks and they had a great chance of winning, and they didn't take it. I guarantee you, if the All Blacks had lost that game, they would not have used the rusty excuse. 
how long is this preparation going on? We've had four years. We've had four warm-up games. We've had a, another warm-up game against Tonga. We've got another one against the USA. At some time, they're going to have to come out and give a definitive World Cup performance. And just one more thing, leaving aside, as I said in the paper on Sunday, leaving aside the game in Marseille in 2007, the last time England gave an England performance worthy of a World Cup was in 2003 in the final. And that is a long time. Yeah, it certainly was. And I mean, I guess they've set, they've given a few performances in the Six Nations, the one in Dublin earlier on in the year that would be worthy of a World Cup, but they do need to translate that to uh, this particular tournament. If we kind of move on to the USA game then on, on Thursday, Eddie Jones is clearly going to have one eye on on further on in the competition with, with Argentina and France towards the end of the pool stages. I presume he's going to mix and match his squad, Slotty, and, and, and start giving some game time to some other players. Do you know what, can I interrupt you, Slotty? No. I'm taller than you and I've been in the job longer. And you've got a big feet. I've got a huge feet. <laughs> Lawrence, never mind about one eye. Don't have one eye on anything by USA. Have two eyes on USA. Put them away and worry about the rest at, on the final whistle. It is time for a definitive performance against USA. Uh, we're not a bad side. Let's have it now with the first team. Sorry, I'm sorry. I apologise. No, that's not. That's not. I enjoyed your answer. Lawrence, I don't think they're going to go anywhere near a definitive performance against the Americans. Uh, they'll, be a bit, uh, they'll be a bit like they were against Tonga. That, in fact, they'll probably be worse because they'll have a, what looks more like a, a second team against them. Interesting point. Who's going to play 10? George Fournau and Farrell both started uh, on Sunday against Tonga. So you're presuming that, they won't, that neither will start against the United States. So who starts at 10? Henry Slade a bit injured. Is is Piers Francis now the uh, now the stand-in or the third choice ten? I think that's really interesting. Who's going to play fifteen? Elliot Daly started. Anthony Watson started. Is is Rory McConaughey actually a, uh, England's fifteen in disguise? I think there's a, I think there's a few a few really interesting selection elements of that game which will. Uh, let us read a little bit into how Eddie sees the team. I'm like you, Jonesy, and, and, and to a lesser degree you, Owen. I don't think England have produced a consummate performance whereby they can make wholesale changes. You know, they have a, a starting 15 who still need to have that shape and structure. And, you know, yes, they will bring in one or two players. Slade, you know, needs more game time. I think Launchbury, you know, is is a more than adequate, you know, replacement in in the second row. But I don't think they can start messing around too much because they need to build as a team as this tournament go moves forward and the games start to get harder and harder and harder. Um, if we look at if we move on and look at England's opponents and we look at France, Argentina. I mean, you know, for lots of reasons, it was a it was a a different type of game. France, were, you know, produced some decent rugby in that first half and, and ended up, uh, what, 20 points to three up at half time and then did what France do, which is collectively switch off and Argentina were able to come back into it. Jonesy, what, what did you make of England's two opponents in, uh, in this particular pool C? Lawrence, I made the same uh, conclusion about each team. Each team played about 25 minutes of rugby that would really have threatened England, but 25 minutes only in each case. And if they could only have sustained that 25 minutes to, say, 65 minutes, then they're in business because they both look class teams in those little interludes. But as we well know, 25 minutes is not enough. If they can make that 65 minutes, then they're in business. But, I mean, Jesus, the, the, the coaches of both teams be tearing their hair out because there is something building there 
but not quick enough, in my opinion, to do well in this World Cup. I disagree with Jonesy on, on almost all fronts. No, France had a really good 30 minutes. Uh, and they couldn't sustain it because they're France and they just that they can't do that. I don't think Argentina were that good. Argentina uh, surged back through some high-spirited performance when, when the French switched off. But they had very little. They had a driving mall from five yards out. That's, that's all they had. And France couldn't stop it. I don't, I don't think Argentina should really challenge England. Argentina have lost 10 games on the trot. They've won four games out of their last 32 there's absolutely no way they should be a challenge. It'll be a good game on what Eddie Jones says is a momentum-building tournament for England. And France don't need to now either because France are pretty much qualified as it is. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I guess the match that kind of left us all feeling a little bit underwhelmed was Ireland against Scotland. Ireland smashed Scotland in every single area, 27 points to three. Do you think it's a question, and Jonesy, I'm going to ask you this, do you think it's a question of Ireland have been holding things back or was Scotland just so bad that it made Ireland look even better. <laughs> I don't think Ireland have been holding things back. I think they've been just off their game. And and Joe Schmidt produced them, Lawrence, perfectly. That, that was the best I've seen them play since they beat the All Blacks. They had players out. I feel that was very encouraging. Scotland were, in, in a four-letter word, soft. They were soft on the field. They were soft in the head. Their tactics were soft. And their pack was soft. And, and they were absolutely overwhelmed. And they got to really find someone. they got to find the new Lawrence McDelalio up there or someone. they got to find some forwards because 
that lot wouldn't have seen off my grandmother's pack. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree. They were, they were beaten in absolutely every area of the game. And you know what worried me even more for Scotland fans is that they just came out the changing room without the sort of fire and brimstone that's required to, particularly up front against Ireland, to challenge them. And, you know, if you're, Scotland, if you're a Scotland supporter now, you're saying, right, we've lost that one. You know, so really, at best, we're going we're gonna to try and beat either Japan or Samoa. And there's a real danger with those two sides that if Scotland don't, up their performance. They could find themselves in the same situation as England did in the last World Cup where they don't even get out the group. Totally, Lawrence. And, you know, uh, on that form, they are in danger in both their games. And, you know, people was, people said, the coach said, Gregor Townsend, well, look, we started slowly. Hang on. This was their whole World Cup. This was their whole World Cup. They started slowly. What the heck did they start slowly for? Mm. That, that first 20 minutes should have been the best and the hardest and most brutal 20 minutes of all their careers. Looking at Ireland, you know, as Jonesy said, it was probably defensively their best performance for quite some time under Andy Farrell. And from an attacking sense, they, they just looked really organised by Joe Schmidt. They had shape, they had structure. And if you look at their key players, for me, Furlong in the front row, Ryan in the second row, Connor Murray, Sexton, you know, all of those players really fired well and looked like they were up for this World Cup. They got the ticket they needed, I think, Lawrence, in that that confidence, everything that they built on the momentum of 2018 has sort of sapped away. And that game, if, if it can be done in a game, could, has done as much as possible to get it back. So are Ireland back as contenders as we would have thought the turn of the year? Well, maybe they are. I think we need to see more because, you know, we, you've already trashed Scotland. I mean, you've absolutely annihilated them. And I, I wish I could disagree with any of your assessment. Now, when, when I got my match tickets um, through for this World Cup, I didn't realise I, I was going to uh, Japan, Scotland on the 13th of October. I'm really looking forward to that one now. There's nothing personal against Scotland at all. You know, I wanted Scotland to go well. I really do. And I want them to beat Ireland. I just expected a lot more from them because I know there's not a lot of love lost between those two teams, uh, particularly over the, after the last few results. And uh, they were just so bad. The warning signs were on the wall when they capitulated against France in Nice in the warm-up games. I just cannot believe they can play that badly again. And uh, I, I really hope that they produce something like the form we know that they're capable of. If we move on to, to Wales, um, who seem to have put the Rob Howley situation, the saga behind them, with a very comfortable, very professional performance against Georgia Jonesy. I mean, four tries before half-time, bonus point done. Warren Gatlin had the luxury of making a few changes. You know, yes, we can talk about the 20 minutes after half-time has not been great, but all in all, job done for Wales, and they look pretty impressive. Yeah, they, they did. I mean, you, you know, you, you'd have to say that the Georgian backline defence in the first 20 was absolutely terrible, but I think Warren used the last uh, second half to try out some of, some of his other players. So we don't really we don't really know. I have to say that um, I've always thought that they were kind of in in the poker expression slow playing in terms of ball in hand attack. You know, when you've got Josh Adams, uh, Liam Williams, and Jonathan Davis in your backs, you you're not going to be that bad. I still think they're slightly underpowered. I still think their 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 front row is the reserve front row is not that great, but. You know, it was decent for them, and um, we'll find out an awful lot against Australia on the weekend. That is really a crushingly massive game. If we look at the biggest fixture over the weekend, depending on where your loyalties lie, but let's be honest, New Zealand-South Africa was was the pick of the round. Uh, I mean, everyone knew it was going to be. South Africa clearly undone in, the, in those first opening minutes were of, of not converting their sort of pressure into points, and then suddenly... 
a bit like Muhammad Ali. They had the sort of rope-a-dope hit with two big shots. I mean, I don't know if anyone's, if you've got a chance to have a look at the George Bridge try again, but in terms of a hallmark of a team try, the skill level of the All Blacks as individuals and collectively, for me, is just on a different level to anyone else at this World Cup. If you take a look at that try again by George Bridge, which came from a box kick, and then the way that they're able to transition from from defence into attack kind of highlights why they probably will go on and, and, and win this Rugby World Cup. Slotty, what does transition mean? Lawrence has made that out. They never did transition, transition in his day. No, no, no. i tell you why, because I, I've been listening to too much football, I think, and uh, they talk about transitioning from, from defence into attack. But uh, no, it came from a box kick. And actually, I want to talk to you both about this. The, the pattern of that game, I think there's more box kicks in that game between these two opponents than I've ever seen in, in a New Zealand-South Africa game. Now, I don't know whether it's the conditions in Japan or whether that's just a fad at the moment or whether teams have specifically decided that there's certain areas of the field they're not going to play in because, uh, you know, New Zealand were box kicking, as were South Africa. And actually, it was South Africa's inability to deal with that aerial bombardment that ultimately cost them the match. Why do you kick to New Zealand? Maybe you can, maybe you can explain this because the, the thing about the All Blacks is that they're so dangerous when, they, when they've got unstructured ball, when the game's being broken up. They pick up a box kick or a long kick or whatever, and they're almost more dangerous from their own 22 than anywhere else on the pitch. Jonesy says that you can see how the All Blacks can be beat. I think that's by a really impressive rush defence like the Lions had in 2017. But but kick to them and give them that chance to, to run at you out of nowhere. They're just phenomenal at that point. I would, I would never kick. I think you've got to keep it and never give it away. Well, I think what, what you have to do against the All Blacks is when you, have, when you have the foot on the throat, so to speak, is you need to keep it on their throat. And uh, South Africa in the opening 10, 15 minutes looked very, very strong. 3-0, should have been 6-0. And you've got to take your chances. You've got to be ruthless in terms of your attacking game. And I think if you can get New Zealand into the situation where they're behind on the scoreboard and then you keep the foot very firm on the throat then um, you've got an opportunity to beat them but uh, South Africa just let them off far too lightly with uh, probably their discipline and their inability to catch the high ball because it was actually New Zealand's kicking that cost South Africa the game I do think there's one other factor Lawrence um, South Africa came out storming and thundering at them and etc and they thought you think God they're in the business here but when those two tries came South Africa to me looked really really shaky mentally as if they all said, blimey, you know, this is going to go the way of all these games. We we did our best. And I think mentally, part of them is a kind of mush deep inside because they're not used to beating them very often. And I think when New Zealand scored those two tries, it, it was a big mental thing and South Africa couldn't handle it. If New Zealand were the pick of the weekend then, I mean, I know it's early days at the moment, but David Walsh wrote the piece in the Sunday Times saying that the All Blacks are neither vulnerable nor untouchable. I guess given recent results, he's probably not far off being spot on there. I mean, who do you think of all the main contenders? Well, you know, What have you made of all the other teams really that could challenge the All Blacks? Or, or, or has this opening weekend already told us that... Uh, you know, let's be honest, it's going to take a very, very good side to uh, to take this trophy away from them. The All Blacks were good. No real surprise. Though maybe they're better than we thought, we, than we had guessed they would be. Uh, Lawrence, for me, the, the team of the weekend was, let's go, go back to almost where we started, team of the weekend was Fiji. They didn't win, but they're going to get better. Kele uh, Yato is going to uh, come back and recover from his concussion, you hope. Uh, they're going to have three more weeks together before they play Wales. Go back to 
what I said before, 13th of October, knockout Sunday. Uh, Japan play uh, Scotland on that day. Wales play Fiji. What a massive day. I just think Fiji. I mean, have you seen rugby like that? Not just old Fijian skills, but the power with which their, their wingers drove. And even more, the, the power with which they tackled, the way they knocked those Australians back. I thought it was extraordinary. And I was, I was predictably, they couldn't, they couldn't sustain it for 80 minutes. But maybe in three weeks' time, they'll be able to go the whole hog. Yeah, listen, I, I agree with you. I mean, I thought, you know, Ben Ryan said he felt, uh, you know, on, on our podcast, you know, last week that he suggested if there was going to be an upset, it's going to come from Fiji. Now, it didn't happen against Australia, but there was enough in that performance, uh, particularly from Yato and uh, and his mates, to suggest that they've still got a massive game within them. And uh, I'm sure uh, Wales will be uh, keeping a very close eye on on, uh, on their performance. Jonesy, I mean, over and above... Fiji, anyone else really stand out for you? Can I just make up one point, and I don't know whether you're going to bring this up later, Lawrence, and that is that, you know, when you were a player, you didn't you didn't really care about the general good of the game, and in in terms of the you know the little the little minnows as they were then called. But when you hear, when you see the reaction of the crowd to the tier two nations, and especially when you see the torrent of love and affection for the tier two nations, even though tier one have nicked all the money, nicked all the players. Uh, don't give them a fixture, never play in their countries. You know, we, we if you're down here, the thing you want the most is for the rugby world to grow up and be bigger. And last World Cup, the teams in the Tier 2 got very close. But I'm very worried this time that the gap is growing again and that Fiji apart, I just, you know, Georgia had a great half. Tonga had some decent play. Uh, Namibia played well against Italy, but not, but got hammered in the end. And I am worried that the haves and the have-nots are getting further apart. And that's what I see from Chapter 1 of the World Cup. And I do not like that at all. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that, really, because we're we're only in week one of the tournament. And it, you feel that as the tournament progresses, the strains and stresses on the squads get even harder and greater. And uh, And the ones that feel it the most are those... You know those so-called uh, tier two nations, which I hate referring to them as tier two. They they should be referred to them in their you know by their name. But I, I can tell you this: this is an interesting fact, okay? That you may or may not know. Twenty percent of all professional rugby players across the world are from the Pacific Islands. Tonga, Fiji, and Samoa put together twenty percent of all of world rugby's best professional players and if that doesn't tell you that they don't deserve a little bit more England haven't been there outside of a World Cup they've never been to Tonga they've never played a test match in Tonga I think you're absolutely right I think that there needs to be this spotlight shone on uh, on the Pacific nations because all that we're doing I mean our two best players are Tongan let's be perfectly honest and they're both called Vunapola every other side has got uh, a number of those players in their teams across the world this has got to be the last World Cup where this where this happens Lawrence tier one tier two tier three Let's, let's get rid of that and let's say to all the top teams, you go and play the teams you played in the World Cup, you go down there and play them. And if the RFU committee or the Welsh Rugby Union committee don't have a nice uh, hotel for the gin and tonics, tough. The other thing, Lawrence, which would be easy, is could we not return the players to the supposed Tier 2 nations when they're done by being poached by Tier 1? So I'm re- referring in particular, or, or for example, to Charles Piertau who played for the All Blacks last time, four and a bit years ago, 
uh, hasn't played for them since. Why can he not go back to play for Tonga like his, with his brother? That's another way of levelling the world up, and that's what we should be doing. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? You're, you're, as a coach, as an international coach, and Eddie Jones is a, is a great example of this, you're allowed to coach an international team of your choice, which is Australia for Eddie Jones by his family roots, and then, and then three or four World Cups later, you know, you're allowed to coach South Africa and Japan and now England. So... Uh, as a player, there's no reason why possibly you shouldn't be allowed to go back and, and reinvest yourself in, in, in that particular country of origin. Maybe a one-year or a two-year moratorium, and then once you've gone back, you know you can never switch again, but I think that would be healthy. You guys, I'm, I'm assuming, have been travelling all over the country, away from the rugby. I understand you had a bit of an incident in Yokohama recently. Steve, you tried to go to a game. Yeah. You went to a rugby match, but you actually went to a cricket game instead. Of no, it wasn't cricket, it was baseball. You, oh, look, look, you've well, got that's, to, what, that's what Lawrence wants to know. Well, it's, it's a game that lasts the same amount of time anyway. <laughs> I was Rob Kitson of The Guardian. Yeah. Who is the chairman of the rugby writers and yeah, should right. know better. I tell you what, he's not chairman of the Explorers Club. <laughs> We, 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 we came into the stadium. We must have walked 10... Well, we'd already walked 10,000 steps that day on my, on my Fitbit. And there was a great big towering stadium in front of us. And it, was, it looked imposing. And we thought, blimey, this is where the final of the World Cup's going to be, the Yokohama Stadium. And we went up there and we said, excuse me, where is the media? Media room, media room. The guy said, didn't know what you're talking about. So we walked around a bit and said, where is the media room, media room? And then he, he was saying something about, no, 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 I couldn't understand it. We walked all the way around. We could not be let in. And we thought, well, where are the, the media, the, the, the Rugby World Cup volunteers wear blue tops? We couldn't see any blue tops. Then we saw this big map of a baseball diamond. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, it was the baseball stadium. And the, but, of course, the rugby stadium couldn't be just around the corner. It was six stops away on an overground train. So by that time, Robert Kitson, I was a bit miffed. But anyway, there we go. It's life. I love the job that we do, but I didn't like that very much. So basically, you, you, you went to the wrong stadium, is what you're saying. A man of all your experience, with all those Lions tours, all those World Cups, and you couldn't even spot a rugby stadium. We watched the baseball, which was very good, yeah. and we covered the game off the TV. No, no, no other newspaper on Sunday had a report from that baseball match, they did, did they? They, yeah. they didn't. That was an exclusive. Sunday Times readers, Yo- very lucky. Yokohama <laughs> Reds by nine goals to two. Nine <laughs> runs I mean, the one thing we don't get to see on the ruck, well, certainly from back where we are here, is, is just the, the sort of, fi- I know it's early days, but just the feeling of the World Cup in, in, in Japan. I mean, it, it looks from what, what we see on TV and what, what you guys have been telling us that the, the, the fans, the crowds are really embracing this competition because, yes, there are travelling supporters from each nation, but the majority of people in these stadiums are, of course, you know, Japanese. And they really seem to be loving this World Cup and loving have, having all the countries from all over the world in, in, in Japan. You're, de- you're dead right. You're absolutely right, and Lawrence. And, and they do, and they're great. But you've got to remember, there is a massive cultural clash here. For instance, they don't, they don't actually get into thronging around all the bars near the stadium four hours before. You know, like I say, they're, 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 they're some of the, uh, the fan zones haven't got, haven't got screens there. And it's 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 very difficult. There's there's no screens around around the, the city and around the stadiums and all that. And you know there's no, there's there's no food in the grounds and some of the procedures are really difficult. So you, you know we, we are used to eventing. You know Wembley, Millennium Stadium, Twickenham. Uh, we're used to having these massive events, and, and they're kind of not used to it here. And it, it, it's different for them, and they're quite reserved. So the welcome is great, 
And, but I do think it needs the influx of the foreign fans, which will happen in the next two or three weeks, to really boost it. And, and then you'll have a real friendship growing there while each culture rubs off on the other. That was a good night, wasn't it? No, I thought you did well there. Now, listen, we have got we have got some midweek matches coming up, and uh, these will have all been played by the time we uh, we next get the ruck out on Friday. There is, of course, Russia v Samoa on uh, tomorrow, um, Fiji against Uruguay on Wednesday the twenty fifth, and Italy against Canada from Pool B, as well as obviously England against the USA from Pool C on Thursday. Now. Clearly, England and Italy should have the squads to cope with only a four-day turnaround. But, And I'm, I'm not sure there's an easy answer to this, but do you think it's still an issue with the scheduling? Do you think it's still inherently unfair on the so-called Tier 2 sides, this four-day turnaround? No, not really. I think four-day turnarounds have been shared around quite broadly. Now, England have got four days. Wales have got six days before they have to play Australia. I don't think that's a, that's a problem. Um, that's not a very interesting answer. <laughs> Listen, I, I guess what they've done is they've shared them around and I'm sure that they would have consulted all the coaches and various unions and, and it's the kind of fair, a, a fair and equitable way of, of, of getting these games played. It just You just feel that, that Fiji, Uruguay, Russia particularly haven't got the squads to cope with it, but you might say, well, they're going to get battered anyway. So uh, what, what, what difference does it make? But the good thing about these games, Lawrence, is that at last these nations can be they're picking on someone their own side. And there could be some real games when the slightly lesser teams play in matches that they can win against other so-called weaker teams. So some of those games are what the World Cup is, and they're the essence of the World Cup. So I'll be watching those as closely as I watch South Africa against New Zealand, I assure you. You you can stay in cover. We'll be out discovering the Kobe beef we've been talking about. Go and pay your room service bill. Jonesy's used to eight-hour matches now for having gone to Yokohama, so uh, 80 (laughs) minutes, he should be be out in the town fairly quickly. Again, I know it's early days, but we, we talked about players uh, that we hadn't really discovered before this tournament. Is there anyone that's... I mean, for me, the, the couple of players that stood out the, in, in a very ordinary second-half French performance, but certainly in the first half, young uh, Damien Pinot uh, on the wing for France, he definitely stood out as well as Anton Dupont. And I guess Sevou Reese, again, another player, and Bridge, George Bridge, the two wings for, for New Zealand, totally inexperienced at test level, but looked um, very, very comfortable against South Africa. Is there any, anyone else that's really stood out for you that, that we wouldn't have otherwise expected to over the opening weekend? Well, I'm going to name a player called Michael Hooper. You might have heard of him. So, seriously, Lawrence, he, he's been the player of the weekend for me. I thought he was just sensational. Everything was going against Australia. Fiji were amazing. Fiji should have won. But if there was one dog of a man who took the fight back against him, it was him. I mean, amazing player. He's not a secret. We all knew about him. But I thought he was absolutely outstanding. Lawrence, uh, as Ben Ryan said um, to us in the studio a couple of weeks ago, Yato, definitely. But uh, I thought tonight for Wales, I thought Thomas Williams looked absolutely brilliant young player in the making. I thought he was sensational. So long, long way to go, as you said. But there are definitely a generation of young players coming through. Penno is a great show. Well, I think the two stars of the opening weekend were, were actually Wayne Barnes and Paul Williams because after a, a bad day for the officials on Saturday, they they showed us what the power of accuracy in decision-making and great communication as a team is capable of. And it kind of restored my faith, really, in in, in the officiating and refereeing for the remainder of the tournament. So a uh, big shout-out to those two particularly. Funny, because Lawrence wasn't like that about refs when he played, was he? 
Yeah, but you're talking about communication within a team, which is like what the ruck is, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, I, I always told you, Jonesy, that it was far, and I said this to the referee, it's far easier if I referee, actually. So didn't expect any of them to listen to me. But they needed all the help they could get. They certainly did. Do you know what, actually, looking at the modern game now, you would, you, you have to be, I'd have to, Definitely have found a way of managing to keep quiet on the pitch because there's no way you can have that same level of chat with the referee that we used to have, for sure. I'll bottle the reds finished. <laughs> well, my thanks to both Stephen Jones and Owen Slot. We'll be back on Friday with The Ruck, where we'll be uh, reviewing England's performance against the USA and looking forward to round two of Rugby World Cup across the weekend. 